The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, found on page 951 in the Bibles under your seat. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified? By works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of God for the people of God. Well, I'm excited to tackle this text this morning. This is one of the most crucial passages in the whole Bible, a really important passage for us to understand what faith is and how God works and what God is after uh, for us. And so I'm excited to dive into it. Before I do that, I want to give you your homework for next week. Um, so I'm going to give you an assignment. You got seven days to do it, and we're going to do it together, okay? So here's the assignment. Uh, between now and next Sunday, uh, do not gossip, complain, criticize, boast, or defend yourself. You guys chuckled. That's what the 9 a.m. service did too. Uh, this, no, there's a real assignment though. I want us to give ourselves to these things. So for a week, I want us to just work hard to actually avoid these patterns of behavior. I know it's going to be a challenge. I know that, you know, there's, it's easy for us to fall into these kinds of things, but I want to give you this assignment for the next seven days. Don't gossip, complain, criticize, boast, or defend yourself. If we actually attend to that for seven days, I think it's really going to help us next week enter into some of the things that the Lord wants to teach us through James chapter 3. So that's your assignment for the next seven days. Uh, the topic of our text this morning in the book of James is faith. And if there's one word in our cultural lexicon and our religious lexicon that's a little bit slippery, it's the word faith, isn't it? Uh, can you think about all the different ways that this word is used um, 
not just to speak of religious kinds of things, but just to sort of talk about, I don't know, whatever people think faith means. Um, since their defeat of Nebraska last month, the Oklahoma Sooners have been on a massive slide into mediocrity and really a debacle of a football season, breaking records for the most awful games played in their history. And um, my son, my older son, is a journalist and works uh, in Norman, and so he goes to all the press conferences and player availabilities after practice. And he's told me one thing that you, people keep saying in Oklahoma is, hey, just trust the process, right? That classic coach, coaching cliche, hey, just have faith. Coach Venables knows what he's doing. It's going to take some time to right the ship and turn things around. Just hang in there. Have faith in the process. You guys around here are hearing that in a different way because we all know that at some point, Nebraska is going to need to hire a new head coach. And so what you're hearing is, hey, the good news is we got Trev Alberts at the helm and just have faith that Trev knows what he's doing. He's a, he's a thoughtful guy. He's going to have a really good process. He has the right connections. Just have faith. Trev's going to get us the right coach, right? Yeah, they, amen. It's the only amen I've gotten all morning right there. I got a, an email this week from one of my financial advisors, and you can guess what it said. It said, have faith in your investment plan. I know inflation is terrible and everything looks really bad, but you know what? This is the moment where you just have to trust the plan that we put together and just, you know, inflation's not going to rise forever. Just have faith. It's going to get better. So when we come to the Bible, uh, we bring all these kinds of ideas with us and, and we end up thinking that faith is some kind of wishful thinking some kind of hopeful outlook on reality. Most of us know that the Bible urges us to place faith in Jesus Christ and that Christianity is a religion built on faith in Jesus Christ. And if you ask most people, what does it mean to place your faith in Jesus Christ? I think what you'd come away with is the idea that placing faith in Jesus Christ is some kind of private transaction of the heart. And the Holy Spirit, through James, wants to challenge that understanding of faith. He wants you to understand that faith is not about a private transaction of the heart, but rather it's about the active consecration of the life and the self. James wants to point out the difference between false faith and true faith, and that's what this section of James is about. So uh, let's get right into it. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to James chapter 2. Uh, as was mentioned, it's on page 950 in the Bible under your seat. And I want to make two initial observations that will just help us understand um, this passage a little bit. So look with me at James chapter 2, verse 14. And notice it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Notice the word says. There are basically three kinds of people in the world, three kinds of people in your life, three kinds of people in this room. There are people who are not Christians. There are people who claim to be Christians. And there are people who are real, genuine Christians. And I probably don't have to tell you that there is daylight between category two and category three, right? Like not everyone who claims to be a Christian 
really has faith in Christ. And that's what James is talking about here. He's talking to all of us who would place ourselves in that second category. All of us who would claim to have faith. I assume that's probably most of you in this room this morning. Every Sunday, there are always people among us who are not yet Christians and who are just exploring what would it mean to trust in and have faith in Jesus Christ. But broadly speaking, many of us in this room would claim to have faith or to be Christians. And one of the healthiest things we can do, according to the scriptures, is to examine ourselves, to really be honest with ourselves about whether we actually have faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This is an important act to sort of reflect and really wrestle with and question where we're actually at with God. So this is a message, this is a text preached to and written to those who would say they have faith. That's who James is talking to. Uh, Second observation, just briefly, is um, a, a cursory reading of this text might lead you to conclude that what you need to do is to add works to your faith. Like, that's good that you have faith, but now you need to add some works to that. That's not what James is saying. And the way you know that is to look again at verse 14 and notice he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, catch this, can that faith save him? Can such a faith save him? That faith, a faith that doesn't produce works, isn't real faith in the first place. James will go on to call this dead faith in verse 17 and useless faith in verse 20. It's not a matter of, hey, that's great that you have faith, now you just need to add some works to that. It's a matter of a real kind of faith in the first place, a faith that is productive of works. So James wants to show us in this section what false faith, faith, false faith is a hard thing to say, what false faith looks like, what true faith looks like, and then how we can get it. Okay, so that's sort of the outline for the sermon this morning. We're going to look at what false faith looks like, what true faith looks like, and then how we can get that kind of faith. So he begins his exposition here by showing us what false faith looks like. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice twice in this little paragraph, he repeats the phrase, what good is that? What's the point of this kind of faith? So let's call this first kind of false faith, sentimental faith. Let's call it Hobby Lobby faith. Let's call it pious platitude faith, right? It's the faith of empty words. It just says nice things, right? And, and the example given is, is supposed to sort of make you go, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, right? Someone's lacking in clothing and food. And what you say is, you know what? The Lord bless you. Be warmed and filled. Guess what that doesn't do? Doesn't put clothes on their back or food in their stomach. And, and what he's saying is, what, what good is that kind of 
faith. It's, it's not real faith. That's not real, meaningful trust in God. Uh, one of the critiques of um, evangelical types of Christianity, and a valid critique, I think, is that gospel Christians, those of us who really care about uh, the gospel, are often so concerned with the salvation of people's souls that they neglect the bodily and material good of those same people. And James here is agreeing with that critique. He says, don't be the kind of person that wants to tell people words, but not help them in their actual practical needs. If all you say is God bless you, but you don't give them what they need, then you're a hypocrite. It's not real faith. But I think it's interesting that at the same time, James also critiques what we might think of as a more liberal type of Christianity. And he does that by making his example here, a brother or sister. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. See, it's fashionable sometimes to talk about Christian responsibility in the biggest and broadest categories possible. Speaking about large groups of people like immigrants or the homeless or the poor. And you know what's often missing in that kind of rhetoric? A personal connection to a real human being in any of those categories. James is saying... Your responsibility for social justice starts right here in this room, right here in your local church. It starts with a brother or sister who is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and then it moves outward from there. This is why in 1 Timothy, Timothy says, if someone doesn't provide for the needs of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It doesn't do you any good to care about what's going on out there if you're not, first of all, caring about the tightest circle of affinity around you. And one of the most beautiful things about both Protestant and Catholic social doctrine is that it emphasizes small local solutions rather than big complicated ones. So how do we solve the problem of poverty? Well, we solve it one neighborhood at a time, starting with our own. How do we solve some of the challenges in education? Well, one student at a time, one school at a time, starting right around us. How do we arrive at a just view of immigration? Well, by starting with the immigrants who are right here among us. James is saying, don't tell me about your concern for the marginalized if you're not helping the brother or sister right here among you. And don't call it faith if you don't have an active concern to actually do meaningful things to help the people around you who have needs. Real faith is active faith, faith that meets needs. And that starts with the closest circle to you. A literal translation of verse 17 would read like this. Therefore, faith, having not works, is dead in itself. In other words, it's a dead faith. It's not a living faith. It's not alive. It's not vibrant. It's not actually real. The issue isn't that you need to add works to faith. The issue is that a faith, doesn't, a faith that doesn't have works isn't a real faith in the first place. It's false faith. So the first example James gives of false faith is someone who, you know, says, hey, you know what? Be warmed and filled, but doesn't actually meet practical, tangible needs. He moves on to a second example of false faith in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith 
by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This second example of false faith, let's call it creedal faith or doctrinal faith. Verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Likely what he's drawing from here is the most famous profession of faith in the Jewish tradition from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, where we say the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is one of the most basic professions of faith that is common to both Jews and Christians. It's a statement of monotheism. So James says, okay, so, so let's say you're the kind of person that believes God is one. You affirm that statement of faith. You do well. Good for you. That is true. It's actually true that God is one. And you know who else believes that? The demons. Demons are remarkably orthodox. You understand that, right? They actually know what is true about God. They do not have, however, faith. Which brings up a really important question for us to think about. Are you saved by believing the right things? Most people in our tribe would say, yes. The answer is actually no. You are not saved by believing the right things. You are saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. You are saved by a person, not by a set of propositions. And those are two very different things. How many of you, when you came to faith in Jesus, had some really bad theology? Anyone? Aren't you glad that Jesus saves people who have bad theology? That actually, before you get it all figured out, Jesus can actually save you and change you? One of my favorite things we get to do here in the process of church membership, as we move people toward meaningful membership in this local church, is we just get to sort of hear people's stories. Sit down and just say, hey, tell me the story of how you came to faith in Christ. And it's a joy to just hear all the stories of how God has worked in various people's lives to bring them to saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I remember uh, years ago, I was sitting down with a guy and I said, hey, tell me the story of how you came to faith in Christ. This is a person who had come to faith maybe in his late 20s. And he said, uh, well, here's what happened. I was, you know, it was a bad week at work and I was just really tired and I was asking a lot of questions about life and I, there was a lot of reasons why I was just sort of searching for some answers. And I came home from work and I turned on the TV and started flipping channels and I found a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. And there was like a phone number at the bottom of the screen and the message he was preaching was, if you mail a check to me, then I will pray for you and God will meet all your needs. And he said, in the midst of that false gospel, this terrible gospel presentation, I don't know what happened, but somehow in the midst of all the bad stuff that guy was saying, I became convicted of my sin. I got on my knees in my living room, gave my life to Jesus. And then I realized a few months later that that guy was preaching a totally false gospel. And thankfully, somehow God used that to bring me to faith. I love stories like that. Because you know what it says? You know, Jesus uses all kinds of things, all kinds of strange means to bring people to faith in him. And that's the beautiful news of God's grace is that God does stuff like that, right? 
You're not saved by having the proper kinds of doctrine. You're saved by trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And so James wants you to understand, you know who else has really orthodox theology? The demons. They are not an example of faith in Christ. So do not look to your orthodoxy as evidence of real faith. So he's given us two examples of what false faith looks like. First, the person who says, hey, be warmed and filled, but doesn't do anything to meet needs. Second, the person who says, God is one. Yes, I affirm that. And yet that's only an abstract, intellectual, cognitive exercise. Okay, well, what does true faith look like then? If it's not that, what is it? Well, James gives us two examples, and his two examples are two characters in the Bible. He says, hey, if you want to know what real faith in God looks like, let's look to Abraham and let's look to Rahab. So example number one, Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you know your Bible a little bit, this might bother you as it did Martin Luther because we have a slight Bible harmonization problem suddenly because here's what Paul writes in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But what James just said is a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So who is right, Paul or James? You have to choose. Now, of course, the answer is the Spirit of God inspired both of these texts, and they are not in conflict with one another, although they can appear to be in conflict on the surface. So let's take a moment to step back into the story of Abraham, to remember the Abraham story so we can understand the point that Paul is making from that story and the slightly different point that James is making from that story, all right? So we're going to step back into the Old Testament. There's going to be a lot of verses on the screens because maybe your fingers aren't quite fast enough to get to all these places. The Abraham narrative runs from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25 in the Bible. And there are two sort of crucial moments in the narrative, two sort of high points in the narrative. The first is in Genesis chapter 15. The text reads this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Verse 5, and he, God, brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. So I just want you to mark it in your mind. We're going to come back to it in a moment. It's crucial for understanding what's happening. The second critical moment in the narrative is Genesis 22. The text reads this way. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham gets to the mountain, leaves his servants there, goes up on the mountain with his son Isaac, makes an altar, binds his son Isaac, 
on the top of the altar, gets out his knife, gets ready to kill his own son. And at that moment, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. These are the two crucial moments in the Abraham story. Okay, now when we get to the New Testament, both Paul and and James appeal to the exact same moment in that story and to the exact same verse in Genesis. Genesis 15, verse 6. Okay, so stay with me. Let's go to Romans. Let's see what Paul does in Romans. Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Later on, in that chapter, Paul writes, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And then he goes into this extended reflection on Abraham's faith. He writes, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But... The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the Apostle Paul appeals to Genesis 15, 6 to make the point that God counted Abraham righteous before Abraham did anything. Solely on the basis of his faith or his trust or his belief in God's promise, that's the moment at which God counted Abraham righteous. And Paul says in the same way, we will be counted righteous when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And Paul says, Abraham is the key example of this. If you look back to when was Abraham counted righteous, it wasn't when he did good stuff. It was when he just believed God's promise. And in the same way, we will be counted righteous if we simply believe in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now, so that's the point that Paul wants to make. Now, let's go to James and notice how James uses this same verse in Genesis. James 2, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father? justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. What scripture? Oh, the one that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6 again. That scripture was fulfilled, James says, when Abraham offered up his son on the altar. In other words, what James is saying is God's declaration of Abraham as a righteous person was fulfilled. 
was filled up, shown to be full of truth by Abraham's obedience. God declared Abraham righteous, and then Abraham showed that he was righteous because his faith and trust in God led him to active obedience. Now, I know we were just deep in Scripture for a while, Genesis and Romans and James. So let's go to Major League Baseball for a minute. Let me see if I can make a connection for you, okay? In 2014, the Houston Astros were in the midst of a 100-loss season on their way to a fourth consecutive last-place finish. They were one of the most historically bad teams in Major League Baseball. And yet, in the midst of that very dismal season, a writer at Sports Illustrated named Ben Reiter made a bold prediction. He claimed that within three years, the Astros would win the World Series. He wrote an article explaining why, and the article was widely panned as like a publicity stunt to sell magazines in the Houston metro area. That's how bad people felt about this article. Sports Illustrated made it their cover story in June 2014 with the headline, Your 2017 World Series Champs. Some of you who know the rest of the story will remember that that's exactly what happened. In 2017, the Houston Astros won the World Series. Now, they also cheated, so the story's not quite as magical as it might seem. There's some complications to the story, especially for those who are Dodgers fans. But the point is that Sports Illustrated journalist in 2017 suddenly had 15 minutes of amazing fame because people were wondering, how did you know three years ago that this was going to happen? We might say it this way. The Astros' performance on the field in 2017 justified that columnist's prediction. His declaration of their future glory was vindicated and shown to be true. That's how James is using the word justified. He's not using it in exactly the same way as Paul. What James is saying is God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham showed himself to be righteous when he offered his son Isaac up on the altar in Genesis 22. His faith was completed by his works. His trust in God's promise was evidenced by his active obedience. So what does true faith look like for you and me? It looks like Abraham. Trust in God that leads to a life of consecrated, active obedience. But that's not the only example James gives. He says that not only does it look like Abraham, it also looks like Rahab, verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This story of Rahab is found in Joshua chapter 2. It's a great story. You can go read that chapter later today if you would like. Uh, but the story is we're now at the part of the Old Testament where God has promised to Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. There are currently Canaanites living in the land, a strong and powerful and militant people. This little tribe of 
God's people who've come out of slavery in the land of Egypt. God is giving this land to them, and he tells them, go and take possession of it. And so the first city they come upon is Jericho. Joshua sends some spies to go check out Jericho and see what's going to be required for them to enter in and take the city. Rahab is a prostitute living in Jericho who has heard of this God and his people and who has heard the promise that God has given his people this land. And so she realizes there are two ways for me to act in this scenario. I can either be loyal to the people of Jericho and therefore opposed to the almighty God of the universe, or I can join God and his people. And so she, in a great demonstration of faith, hides these spies in her house and she makes them make a covenant with her, a promise. She says, listen, I know that God has given you this land. And when you come to Jericho, I want you to promise that you'll spare me and my family and all the people in my household. And they say, we absolutely will make that promise to you. Tie this scarlet cord in your window. And when we come to Jericho, we will make sure that you are protected and spared and saved. And in that decision, Rahab joins and is counted into the people of God, an outsider who is brought in and joins God's people, not just by her faith, but by her faith that takes the active shape of joining and furthering the work that God is doing. So James says, like Abraham, Rahab is a model of a faith that takes action. In these two character examples, James says, is your picture of what real faith looks like. So you have Abraham, a major Bible character. Rahab, a very minor player. Abraham, a man. Rahab, a woman. Abraham, a respected patriarch. Rahab, a woman of ill repute. Abraham, the father of the people of Israel. Rahab, a Gentile and an outsider. James is showing us by these two examples that real faith is available to anyone. Real faith is available across this wide swath of life circumstances and kinds of people. Real faith in God is not only for a certain kind of person, only for people with a certain kind of story. Real faith is available to anyone. Yeah. Now, here's what James wants you to see. Real faith is not a private transaction of the heart. It is active consecration of the life. It's a life given over to God. It's not something you just do with your mind. It's something you do with your whole being. And so here's the final question that I want to ask. How do we get this faith? Like if James has said, here's what false faith looks like. Here's what true faith looks like. I think we can read the story and see, okay, I see that he's telling us, be like Abraham, be like Rahab. How do we get that faith? The answer is actually quite simple. It's right here in the text. If we just ask, what's the nature of the faith that Abraham has? What's the nature of the faith that Rahab has? What do they do? Here's the answer that you and I can do as well. They simply choose to believe that what God says is actually true. That's all they do. They choose to believe that what God says is actually true. In Abraham's case, what God says is, hey, I know you're 90 years old, but I'm gonna give you a son. And Abraham just chooses to believe, okay, I believe you could do that. And I'm gonna act as though that is true. Now, if you read the whole story of Abraham, 
that faith goes through ebbs and flows, right? But the point is, he trusts and takes God at his word and chooses or at his word and chooses to believe that what God says is actually true. Likewise, Rahab, when the word comes to her that God is giving his people this land, she simply chooses to believe that what God says is actually true and to align her life with that. That's all she does. And friends, listen, you can do that same thing. What real faith is, is just choosing to believe that what God says is actually true. So here's what's interesting. Most of us, I think, believe that God's words are nice, believe that God's words are encouraging, inspiring, uplifting, helpful for seasons when life is difficult. Most of us believe that if you take some of God's word and paint it on a canvas and sell it at Hobby Lobby, it looks really nice in your living room or on your coffee mug. But the real question is this, do you believe that God's words are actually true? Not just inspirational, not just helpful, but true. See, the word of God came to Abraham and Abraham chose to believe it was actually true. The word of God came to Rahab and she chose to believe that it was actually true. And the word of God has come to us also, hasn't it? In fact, if we take the trajectory that starts with God's promise to Abraham, that trajectory takes us through God's word to Rahab and brings us all the way to God's fulfillment of his word in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. What God has said to us, as we've already celebrated so far this morning, is that you are a sinner and that God has sent his son into the world to live in your place, to die for your sin, to be resurrected into glory, and to send his Holy Spirit upon the church. And the question is simply, do you think that's true? Like, do you think that actually happened in time and space and history? And are you willing to just build your life on that? To just say, well, that's what I'm banking on. That that has actually happened and that it's really true. And that that's the story that defines the world and therefore, it's the story that's going to define my life. That's, the real, that's what faith is. It's just saying, you know what? The message of God, the word of God that's come to us in the gospel is true. And I'm just going to bank my life on it. Now, here's what's funny about that. If you pay attention to the story of Abraham and the story of Rahab and the story of all the other people in the Bible who in similar ways trusted God, here's what you will see. You'll see that sometimes it's really evident that God is at work in the world and that story is being fulfilled. And other times, there are decades of silence where the question is, is God even still up to anything in the world? So the fact that your life has both of those moments in it should not surprise you. My point is this. The nature of real faith is not how deeply and emotively do you believe in the gospel. The question of real faith is, is this what God has actually done? And is that what you're banking on? Is that the story that defines your life? Is that the story by which you are living? That's the real question for us. And James wants you to see, listen, you can have that kind of faith right now today. 
This word, this promise has come to you. God has given his word to us in his son. And what we're invited to do is just believe that what God has said in his gospel is actually true. And that we're going to live our lives based on that. That does not require any particular strength of emotion. It doesn't require any certain kind of personality. It doesn't require that you are just a a faith-oriented person who just finds it easy to believe stuff that sounds religious. It's simply a matter of what story are you going to live by? What do you actually think is true and what are you basing your life on? Abraham believed that God's word was true and he chose to base his life on that. Rahab believed that God's word was true and she chose to align her life with the story of his people. Friends, the word of God has come to you and me and we're invited to the same thing. To believe that what God says is actually true and to align our lives with him. James says, that's what real faith is. Real faith is not, you know what? Be warmed and filled, go on your way. May the Lord bless you. Nor is real faith, I believe that God is one. I have a really good doctrinal statement with all the boxes checked. Real faith is, I believe that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the dead and that's what my life is going to be built on. That's true in my convictions and what I believe and think and it's true in the decisions I make and how I decide to live my life. Friends, that's James's invitation to you. Hey, let's be people of real faith. So would you join me in praying that God would make that true of us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for this reminder of what real faith is and isn't. So Father, would you set us free from false faith? For those of us here who say we have faith, would you help the faith we have to be faith like Abraham, faith like Rahab, faith that chooses to believe that what you say is actually true? Would you cause us this morning to not hope in the strength of our emotion or the depth of our feeling, but rather in the reality of what you have actually done in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So make us people who build our lives upon that for our good and for your glory. Amen.